Hello, I'm Will Stein and welcome to Geography Island Jams. This podcast is in the same style as the BBC Radio 4 Desert Island Disc series, whereby each episode I ask my interviewee what eight songs, book and luxury item they would want to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. For rights reasons, the music has not been included in the podcast. You can find links to the eight songs on the LSE Geography and Environment website. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Geography Island Jams. Joining me for this episode, I have alumnus of the LSE, Peter Oppenheimer. Peter graduated from the LSE with a degree in BSc Geography in 1985. Whilst at the LSE, Peter did a series of economics modules which kick-started his now 35 years of experience as a research analyst. He is currently the Chief Global Equity Strategist and Head of Macro Research in Europe, Goldman Sachs. Before joining Goldman Sachs, he worked as Managing Director and Chief Investment Strategist at HSBC and was previously head of European strategy at James Capital. Prior to that, Peter was chief economic strategist at Hasbro's bank. Peter began his career as an economist at Greenwells in 1985. Before going to the LSE, Peter was born and grew up in Hendon, northwest London. Outside of his work, he is into cycling and painting, as well as getting involved in various charities, including the Anna Fruit Charity in Mitzvahday. Finally, Peter has recently released his own book, The Long Goodbye, Analyzing Cycles and Markets. The book explores the repeated patterns in financial markets, the factors that drive them, and how changes in economic conditions and technology drive investment opportunities. Hi, Peter, and welcome to Geography and Jams. Thank you very much, Will. Great to be here. Thanks for asking me. So I thought a fun place to start would be talking about your childhood. So you were born and grew up in Hendon, northwest London. As you said, you went to your local comprehensive Hendon school. Is there anything you remember most prominently from that time? Any funny stories or traditions which you remember? Well, it was it was a pretty enriching experience. You know, it was a very mixed uh, demographic uh, in terms of people from sort of different cultures and backgrounds, and and that was something that I actually enjoyed and learned a lot from. I think I hated it to begin with. Um, it was actually a school on on two sides. The first side for the first couple of years was really unpleasant from my perspective there was a lot of uh, kind of bullying and it was it was uh, uh, a little bit intimidating but when we moved up to the upper school you know I I, uh, I think I got I got a lot more into it particularly uh, you know when I started A levels because in those days and particularly then and there you know very few people actually stayed on to do A levels so what was actually a very big school year became much much smaller and I think that's when I really started to get much more interested in actually studying and, and, and getting into it. It was also a school where, you know, there wasn't much going on in terms of sports and extracurricular stuff. Um, the only real sports you did was football and I was really useless at football, so I didn't really do any of that. But, you know, I've got good memories of it and still one of my closest friends is from there, someone I actually grew up with. So, um, yeah, it was... Uh, I learned a lot from it, I think, and I've uh, got happy memories. And what about your childhood as a whole? Do you have any final memorable stories from you know your, your whole childhood? Um, nothing uh, really stands out. I must say, what, what I did do, I do recall uh, clearly, was um, working at quite a, a young age, something, again, that's not really something you can do so much today but I, I started work actually locally 
at a chemist shop on a Saturday uh, when I was 14 and that was extremely hard work but it was you know that was a good sort of life experience as well and I had a series of weird jobs you know I worked actually in my school to get some money as a, a lollipop man so someone who stood by the um, school zebra crossing um, with a lollipop you know standing out when to slow cars to get kids to younger kids to school I remember my older brother Robert when he was driving with some friends drove up and uh, chucked eggs at me which I battered away with the the head of the lollipop um, but that was uh, what one of the things I did part-time when I was at school and then actually you know when I was uh, uh, during the summer holidays before and actually during university did a whole series of weird jobs from working as a removal person to being a baker of um, uh, apple strudel in a local bakery um, all kinds of things like that which I remember doing in some ways I, I think you know it's a lot harder to do those sorts of things now particularly from a young age you know it's just um, but I, I, I do have happy memories of doing a lot of those different sorts of things. I was also, uh, I remember going to um, the local employment agency who helped to find jobs for students during the summer. And I was asked if I could uh, paint, which I could, thinking, can I paint artistically? Uh, what they really meant was, can I do painting and decorating? Anyway, the next thing I knew was that they sent me up to an office in Baker Street that they wanted painted and I thought well how hard can this be and I, I started painting this office which was fortunately empty but it did have a carpet in it and I ended up climbing up a ladder to, to paint the ceiling and a sort of five litre pot of paint collapsed onto the floor on this carpet uh, which was a disaster uh, I was immediately sacked from the, from the job uh, as I was actually from being a, a, a hamburger chef in one of the local restaurants, um, which I was also incapable of doing at anything like the speed that was required. So, uh, you know, just a few things that I did, which I look back on as being quite, quite fun. So we're now coming on to the music. Can you tell me about the first song you'll be taking with you? Well, you know, I had, like probably everyone doing this kind of thing, really sort of struggled to, to narrow songs down to eight because I have a lot of quite broad interests in music and music has always been quite a big part of what I enjoy doing. But I've tried to sort of pick songs that are not necessarily my most favourite songs, but things that kind of spark a memory of a particular stage of my life or something that I was doing. So this first song is one of those. It's actually by Morecambe and Wise, the comedy duo of the 1970s. They, at one point, had one of the most popular sort of Saturday evening, you know, light entertainment programmes. So I always got very fond memories of sitting there watching that with my, with my brother. Um, and they did this, well, a signature song called Bring Me Sunshine. Uh, bring me sunshine in your smile, bring me laughter all the while. It's a very happy, uplifting song, and that is my first one that I choose. So you studied BSc Geography at the LSE, graduating 1985. What do you remember most from your time at the LSE? You know, I, it, lots of things, really. Uh, partly, I, I was where I think I really sort of flourished and grew and started to broaden my interests like a lot of people do I suppose in 
just general things from politics to international politics to philosophy and reading lots of things. And I think it was a very fertile environment to do that. I remember it was a bit of a shock because, you know, I, I had the opportunity to do a series of modules. I don't know if it works that way now, but I thought, oh, I'll learn something about politics because I was quite interested in it, never done it before. I remember the first essay I did, I got a D for, and I was completely disheartened and shocked. Um, but politics was actually a very big part of the LSE at that stage. Remember, this was really during the, the Thatcher Revolution and, and you know, political um, feelings ran very high in all kinds of directions. It was also the time of the miners' strike, which was a very um, uh, significant sort of social event, really, at the time. And... You know, just listening to people at the, the the union and going along avidly to the Wednesday union meetings was really probably the highlight. It was just really fascinating listening to the debates and um, and also some of the incredible people who were there at the time. I wasn't taught by, but just had access to, and you could listen to people like Karl Popper, for example. It was quite amazing. Did you have any favourite LSE meals or places to eat on campus? Ah. Well, there was, of course, I mean, Wright's Bar, which is still there, isn't it? That's the yeah. real institution. I remember going there every day and sitting with my friends and over a, a cup of tea or mainly went there for lunch. It, it, interest, well, it, you know, the campus itself was nothing like what it is today. You know, it's, it's remarkably changed, as, 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 as you know, but it was a bit of a dumpy place at the time with very little choice of places to eat at all. Uh, there was three tons. I don't know if that's still there. The bar is it still there? Well, it's, it's still there, but I think it's a completely brand new. Space. Is it? Yeah. Well, that was a real dive at the time, but it was quite fun, and lots of people hung out there. But the the culinary um, opportunities were were very very limited at the time, I must say. But um, you know, it had its charm despite it being really at that stage just a collection of really sort of grimy old office buildings. It was before the new library had been built and the old theatre was pretty much the only theatre there. But it's so much improved now. And when I go around there now and look at it, it's, it you know, it's just uh, architecturally, but just as a, as a sort of space, just generally for interaction. And uh, it, it's just so much better than it was then. But nonetheless, it was always exciting because of where it was, you know, really right in the heart of London, near Soho, near Covent Garden. It was near the, the legal centre, the financial centre, you know, so it, it, and it always attracted very, very interesting people who came to speak there. So, you know, that, that, that has endured, I think. Final LSE question is, did you have any favourite lecturers or modules or courses which you did? Well, I... The, you know, my tutor, who I really uh, respected and, and liked very much, who was a very charming man, was uh, Robert Estell, who um, sadly is no longer uh, with us, but a really, really lovely gentleman who um, was very, very patient and um, had a lot of time. You know, he was particularly interested, you know, his, his area was uh, industrial geography of, of, of North America and I learned a lot from him about that it was a real sort of you know in, uh, interaction if you like between human geography and economics which is really what I was very interested in you know that that uh, he was particularly focused on so 
he's, he's someone that I have particularly fond memories of. And we're now moving on to your second song. Can you tell me what it is and for any reasons why you're taking it with you? Well, this second song, I, I've chosen it because I do love it. It's a, if you like a bit of a... Di- I love soul music, but I also love disco music. I grew up, you know, dancing a lot to disco. And this was actually the first concert I ever went to. And it's Earth, Wind and Fire. It comes from the album All in All. And it's, the song is Fantasy. And I actually remember going to this concert in 1978 in Wembley in London. And I was just completely bowled away by it. And uh, just the, the theatre of, of, uh, of the group, apart from the song and the music, you know, it was just remarkable. They, they were fantastic clothes. They did all these sort of magic shows. And, and I just loved it. And I still love getting up and dancing to the song. It's fantastic. What do you think was your biggest challenge in getting to where you are today? Well, um, you know, being patient, um, you know, I think a lot of people, when I look back at it, were not patient enough. You know, sometimes you just got to sit there through periods that are challenging and where you're not growing and developing in your career as much as you would hope. But sometimes it's just been, you know, um, it paid off to sort of just work hard and be patient and wait for the opportunities to come along. So that was been a bit of a challenge. I would say, you know, having looked back now, you know, 35 years on uh, from starting my career, you know, a lot of, a lot of where you get to is a function of twists of fate and luck, you know, someone, a boss, in fact, the boss that I mentioned who I did like and respect a lot, finally left and that gave me a big move up in my uh, exposure and, and uh, you know, promotion. Um, I spent some time in Australia for the company I was working for at the time and that was very exciting but also gave me an opportunity to do, you know, to be pushed into the deep end a bit and do a lot of things which I might have otherwise not been able to do here in London at the time. Um, so a bit of patience and just... Um, recognizing and having the humility to realize that a lot of the successes are a function of just opportunities that come your way but as long as you're patient and work hard uh, and are open to the opportunities you know that that really is the is what I feel I've I've learned from from my career but yeah the challenges have sometimes been to you know grit your teeth and recognize that sometimes things are not always going the way that you would hope uh, but just to stick with it and work hard and recognise that most things, whether you like them or not, are experiences which you learn from. And I think this one will probably be a similar theme to what you said, but do you have any advice for students who've just graduated and are now entering the job market? Well, I, I do think that things are more difficult in a way because in, in some in some ways, you know, there's a, a great deal more more competition. Um, you know, particularly in a place like London, it's it's much more global, much more international now than it was was then. So you're competing not just with other people in the UK, but people from all over the world. Having said that, of course, there are many many more jobs in in my industry than there were then. Um, you know, in in the year that I started in what was then quite a prominent company the graduate intake with 10 people you know now when you think that some of these these banks take in you know hundreds of people you know it's a very different scale so 
in that sense, the opportunities are bigger. But I would say not to be, um, not to rush so much, to recognise that in the end, you know, a career can be really very long. And that's difficult to perceive and appreciate when you're young. <laughs> but uh, it's, it, you know, I, I think you've got the time to, you know, hopefully, again, people are going to be working for much longer now than was the case previously. You know, in the generation before me, lots of people retired in the late 50s, certainly by sort of 60. And, and, you know, hopefully people are going to be healthier and more active for a lot longer. And they may end up doing lots of different types of careers that might be, you know, adjacent to each other. Uh, but where you build skills that are relevant to the different things that you do. And just as, you know, the generation before me, people tended to go into a job and stay in that single job for most of their career. And in my generation, the big change was that people tended to stay in the career, but move from one job to another. I think in the current generation, it'll be, a you know, probably people will be moving from career to career doing quite different jobs. And that, I think, is actually potentially quite exciting. So I think being a bit patient and not worrying too much about it, but recognising that each thing that you do, while maybe not the thing that is the most fulfilling thing you hope to end up doing, can be a real, something they really learn a lot from. Can you now tell me about the third song you'll be taking with you? So the third song here is something that reminds me of my sort of younger teenage years. I've always been a big fan of uh, Bowie. I love him for so many different reasons. I love his music. I love his fashion, the way he looked, and the, the way that he was happy to really sort of challenge the status quo, and also the way that he evolved and changed. And it really comes back a little bit to the discussion we've just had, that over the course of one's career, you know, it's fine to change, to go through different stages, to go through different innovations of yourself and what you challenge yourself to do and what you end up doing. And for that reason, I've chosen Changes. Um, I love the song. And it also sort of makes me think about my children and how they've gone through their sort of phases as they've, as they've grown. And, and also how I think it, it's good that you know, I, I think it's an exciting thing to face life with the mindset that you can go through very different innovations with yourself. And I love the song, and that's 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 for the reason I've chosen this one. So now I want to talk about your recent book, The Long Goodbye, Analyzing Cycles and Markets. So I thought, do you want to start off by giving a summary on what the book is about? Yeah, well, in a sense, it's a part history book and part a sort of hopeful, practical guide of thinking about economics and investment opportunities. It's historical in the sense that it's really trying to understand the connectivity between economic cycles and financial cycles um, going back over the last couple of hundred years. And I think one of the things that I was really trying to bring out in this is that despite huge changes over time, there does seem to be uh, a pattern of repeated cycles in both economies and markets, even under very, very different conditions. And, you know, going back to our earlier discussion, you know, when I think of the period where I started in my work 
uh, and how things are now, you know, there's been tremendous changes. You know, at that time, we were still in the Cold War. There was a communist bloc. This was before the Berlin Wall came down. You know, interest rates were in double digits. So was inflation. You know, this was in the era before the digital revolution. There were, um, you know, no PCs really to speak of. There were no, certainly no mobile phones. When you think of all of the changes that we've seen, and yet despite all of those changes, we're still getting recessions, recoveries, you know, bull markets, bear markets. Why is it that these things keep repeating themselves? And how much does human psychology and crowd behavior play in those repeated patterns is something I've tried to bring out uh, in the book. And also how the tremendous changes in things like technology have impacted financial markets, not just in the recent past with the digital revolution that we've spoken about, but even in the far past, thinking about things like, you know, the printing press, um, the, uh, the mania around uh, the canal uh, revolution, the railroad revolution, the telecoms revolution and many others since. So it's part history book and part sort of practical guide to thinking about um, how to invest through those cycles. Do you remember when you first thought about writing the book? I first started about about a couple of years ago. You know, I, I, I'd written, I mean, my job is, I should say, is, um, as a, is a research analyst, a macro research analyst. It's actually, my title is a, a strategist. So my role is really to take macroeconomic forecasts and also insights from company analysts and to try and strategize and think about uh, ways to structure portfolios to to optimize returns um and you know i've written a lot of you know day to day what i do is you know we use our models and we do analytics and then we write research and come up with recommendations and i've written lots of uh you know try to develop lots of sort of systems and um infrastructure if you like over many years to to describe the way that we think about things like cycles and, and investing and you know i thought it would be a good idea to try and bring some of those different ideas together in in a single publication and yeah i guess i started thinking about it a couple of years ago it, it took overall about a year and a half a little bit more than a year to write you know this was sort of in my spare time obviously part of it was leveraging of things that I'd written before um, but I underestimated the complication of actually writing a book it's different from writing other things and just the the logistics of getting it fully together and the proofs and the changes that you make after that so the whole thing took a little under a year and a half but I started to think about it a couple of years ago. So in the book you talk about how human behavior impacts financial and economic cycles how do you think the global pandemic caused by COVID-19 will affect human behavior in the future? And then furthermore, how do you think this will affect future market cycles? Well, this is an area that I think is really fascinating. And, you know, in academic circles and in, in practice, you know, in, 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 in uh, the practice of, uh, you know, economics, um, you know, interest in behavioral sciences has increased dramatically. Really, the trigger for that, and I write about this in the book, 
was the financial crisis, you know, a little more than a decade ago, because the recession that that financial crisis triggered was pretty much unanticipated anywhere. You know, it was one, you know, most recessions are not forecast by professional economists, but that one in particular was basically uh, a, a, a shock to most people. And, um, and as I, I write about in the book, you know, in fact, at the LSE, famously, the Queen came for a visit and asked the group of the uh, surrounding professors, you know, what, why is it that nobody noticed this? Here you all are, you know, the top of the economics, you know, sort of profession, what, what went wrong? And there was all this, you know, and they decided to convene a group of academics and practitioners and, and to write a letter to the Queen to explain what went wrong. And, you know, this is quite a long story and quite a long letter, but in the end, what they said was that there was a, a bit of a sort of collective mania and people just couldn't recognise the systemic risks in the system that were building up. Um, and the, the optimism and sort of sentiment that was driving higher asset prices in the financial system. Now, uh, the, the sort of manias and uh, sort of animal spirits that drive cycles in financial markets have been long commented on, you know, even going back to the period after the uh, great uh, tulip mania, mania of the 17th century and the um, uh, many bubbles uh, since. Uh, again, there's a chapter in my book that, that, that talks about these. But um, I think that the psychology of crowds and of human behaviour is increasingly interesting, I think, to study because it's been very underestimated as an impact on the way that uh, the economics profession has, has developed, I think. Um, because, you know, in the end, economics like geography and so many of these subjects are, are, are sort of social sciences to some degree. They're, they're, well, in, in geography, you've got the physical side of it, which is a sort of science, and then you've got the human side of it, which, which is, you know, human beings are not always entirely predictable and they don't always respond in the way that the models suggest that they ought to as rational players. And I think the recognition of that has increased a lot since the financial crisis. And I'm very interested in psychology. I'm involved in a, in a actually one of the charities I'm involved in is, in, uh, is um, uh, a mental health charity. But my wife is a psychologist, so it's an area that I think the the nexus of economics and psychology and financial markets is an area that interests me a lot. And um, I think this pandemic is having a very big impact as well. Um, now, remember that we've now had two big economic shocks, two massive economic shocks in the space of a little over 10 years. That is in itself pretty unprecedented and has all kinds of effects on the way that people behave and the way that companies behave, on how cautious people are, on how they plan their futures. Um, and, you know, a lot of this is sort of evolving in front of us. Um, but it's the combination, I think, as well of these shocks together with massive changes in technology, which are challenging the way that people think, that companies think, and the risks that people see of their jobs um, that, that, that's going to have quite a big impact on uh, 
on, on all kinds of behavioural aspects of finance moving forwards. So I've got a few more market questions, but before we come onto that, can you tell me about the fourth song you're going to be taking with you? Yes, uh, indeed. So this fourth song um, is by an artist who I uh, really love, um, and that is Bob Dylan. I love so many of his songs, it's very difficult to choose which one. Um, but I've chosen this one because it makes me think a lot about my children. Um, it's called Forever Young. Uh, it was originally, um, came out in 1973, I think, in the album Planet Waves. It was actually written, as I understand it, as a sort of lullaby for his son. But, it, you know, the words are, like most of his songs, extremely philosophical and poetic. And it's very beautiful and um, really makes me think about, uh, you know, my, my, my children. And you know the you know kind of loss of of innocence but the importance of keeping sort of young in your mind and keeping true uh to yourself and i i love the words and i find it very uh, moving so going back to your book in your book you discuss the four phases of market cycles what do you think needs to happen before we can expect the global markets to bounce back do you think a vaccine would be enough well um, firstly, I think the prospects of a vaccine, from what I understand, are looking quite optimistic and the uh, prospects for production of vaccine at scale, in other words, the ability to, to actually produce large volumes is also looking much more optimistic relative to uh, the concerns that people had just a few months ago. But it, it, we should be very clear that, that financial markets, particularly risk markets like equities, have already priced in a very strong recovery from what has been a historic recession. Bear in mind the recession this year, if you look at the global contraction this year, probably around 4%, in many countries way more than that, um, you know, these are the deepest annual contractions that we've seen certainly since the 1930s. In the case of the UK, the annual contraction this year is likely to be bigger than we've seen at any time since the 1700s. So this is a remarkable uh, scale of collapse in economic activity we've seen, but nonetheless, a remarkably strong policy response to it. And coupled with that, it's been a very unusual recession because it's been a recession that hasn't been triggered by economic events themselves, but rather by this pandemic and the forcing, the forced closure of economic activity to deal with that pandemic. And, and as that, um, you know, the lockdowns ease and people gradually get back to some semblance of normality, we would expect to see a very strong recovery in economic activity. And that's really what the markets have been pricing really since the March low many equity markets have got back to, even gone through the levels that they were at before the pandemic hit. And when you think about the scale of the economic downturn I just mentioned, that's quite remarkable. But the reason it's happened is because investors are looking through that downturn into a recovery as the uh, effect of the pandemic eases but also recovery that's supported by amazingly supportive monetary and fiscal policy. 
So you've got zero interest rates virtually everywhere. In some places, actually negative rates. They're even more negative in real terms because inflation has picked up a little bit. And that tends to be very supportive for financial assets. But it's also combined with now a very significant easing of fiscal policy as governments around the world have increased spending to moderate the effect of the economic damage from the downturn and trying to ease the the longer term scarring, the longer term structural damage to the economy as a result of such a big shock to economic uh, activity. So it's now time for your fifth song. Can you tell me what it is and for any reasons why you're taking it with you? Well, this song is a song that I like very much, but I also think it's been very influential. It was influential to me when I first heard it. I was pretty bowled away by it. Um, It's Gil Scott Heron, uh, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. You know, he, a little bit like uh, Dylan, I think is, you know, a sort of poet. And I love this sort of combination of of poetry and, and, and music. But also, you know, an enormously influential song. Uh, you know, it's been, it's had a huge impact on, on everything from, you know, so many different genres of music since, actually rap and hip hop and so on. Um, and I think it's, you know, both very uh, stimulating to listen to. Um, uh, the, the beats are, are, very, um, are very exciting as well, but also the words, a pretty meaningful and you know he um in an interview in the 1990s he, he, he kind of talked about the idea behind the poem and this sort of thought that the revolution will not be televised basically comes from an idea that you have to change what's taking place in your mind he said to change the way that you behave and when you're changing your attitudes in your mind you can't film that you can't put it on in you know on the television in film and i just think it's a really interesting concept uh, I, I and um it was something that moved me a lot at the time and it sort of crisscrosses this um sort of interest in in, in poetry in music but in also different genres of music which uh, i like a lot as well outside of work you're both a passionate cyclist and painter have you always been a cyclist enthusiast? Well, you know, I, as I mentioned, when I grew, was growing up in northwest London, I was on my bike the whole time. So I've always been used to cycling. I've always cycled and enjoyed it. But I got more into it, you know, um, in my late teens and got back to it actually about 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, I love off-road mountain biking, but also road biking and uh Three or four years ago, I um, was lucky enough to go on a, a charity event called the Trois Etapes, which was three um, mountain stages of the Tour de France, um, which was a great challenge to train for. And it was an amazing thing to do. I actually was leading a team for a charity that I was involved in at the time. But what was also remarkable about it was that you know each of the teams also had a professional tour cyclist with them it was an incredible experience i was particularly bad relative to everyone else despite all my training but i loved it and i i I just love cycling i go on lots of cycling holidays uh we do it with the family 
you know, it's a, it's a great way of getting exercise. I love the fact, you know, spend time just meditating or chatting with people or looking at things as you're going through the countryside or through cities. And I, I just, I just love it. Painting is something I've always enjoyed doing. Um, I love and appreciate art. I like going to art galleries, but I've always enjoyed drawing and painting. I went to and been to, you know, painting classes and art school in the evenings for many, many years. I'm not doing it currently because I don't quite have the time, but um, have gone through, you know, a, a number of different, um, uh, you know, evening classes and things like that, and life drawing and abstract painting and stuff. And again, it's just a lovely hobby to have. It's very meditative. It's very different from my day-to-day -day work. Uh, which is more sort of, uh, you know, intense and cerebral. And I find it a really good way of relaxing as well. So you said that when you were younger, you wanted to go to art school and even still do now. What yeah. stopped you when you were younger? Oh, that's a great question. Well, probably I wasn't brave enough, uh, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of had this, you know, romantic um, fantasy of going to art school and, and, and living uh, you know, that kind of, kind of life. And I was always interested in it, but then I thought, well, I'll never, you know, first of all, I'm not really good enough. And second of all, I'll never make a living, which is why I jokingly sort of think about maybe one day I'll, I'll still do it because, you know, I've had a career now and something I actually still really enjoy doing. I'm still probably not good enough, but um, I, you know, sometimes wonder, you know, what would have happened if I'd have taken a different direction and, you know, not gone to university, but gone to art school. Who knows? Mm. Um, but uh, I'm happy to have it as a hobby and, and continue with it and maybe at one stage spend more time doing it. But now moving on to your sixth song, can you tell me, what is and for reasons why you've chosen it? Uh, well, this is uh, another, uh, it's, it's, it sort of reminds me of a time, actually around the time I was at LSE, and I just like this. I, I remember sort of hanging out with friends, listening to this. Um, I like the band a lot. This is Talking Heads, one, uh, Talking Heads Once in a Lifetime. Again, I think I'm attracted to this because I love the lyrics. Um, I love David Byrne's lyrics in general. And, you know, I like the idea behind it. You know, he, he talked about this song. It's partly inspired by sort of preachers delivering sermons. I like that idea. Um, and he sort of described this song as about how people tend to sort of operate half awake or on autopilot. They often go through life, you know, acquiring things or doing things without actually thinking about why they're doing it and sort of exploring what that really what that really means and whether those things are worthwhile things to spend time and effort doing i love the song i love the uh the rhythm behind it i love the way it starts and uh yeah it just reminds me of that sort of time in my life in my life around the time of lse you know listening to this kind of music so now moving us to the last couple of questions. If you were having a dinner party and could invite a special guest, dead or alive, who would it be and why? What a great question and what an impossible thing to answer. I mean, there's just countless people that I would love to. But, um, but I think I would go for Larry David, the comedian. 
I think he's very funny. He's very controversial. And I think he'd be a really interesting and fun person to hang out with for an evening. And as we're on the topic of dinner, if you had to choose a meal, like a dream meal, what would it be? Oh, a dream meal. That's, uh, that is, well, I, would, I should say my mother's chicken soup. But, <laughs> um, uh, aside from that, and she got the recipe from my grandmother, who I was very close to, I, I love Middle Eastern food, actually. Lebanese food. Um, I increasingly eat more vegetarian food and I, I, I like the way that they cook vegetarian food. And I love Japanese food. So it would be a, uh, one or other of those. I think right now I'd probably go for some kind of Middle Eastern fusion. So now it's time for your seventh song. Can you tell me what it is and why? Yeah, so this is, um, I, you know, I love soul music and I love folk music. And Van Morrison, I think, is a bit of a, you know, a combination of those two genres. I love Van Morrison. I love his voice. Um, this particular song, I didn't know which one to choose because there's a lot that I like, but this one is called Tupelo Honey. Uh, it's a particularly soulful uh, song. Um, interestingly, it was actually, he, he did a joint performance of it once with Bob Dylan in, uh, during a concert tour in 1990. Um, and you know it just reminds me it doesn't remind me of a particular time um but i've i've often gone back to listening to his music i find it very restful uh, again it's very lyrical and poetic uh and and i love this sort of um nexus between sort of soul and folk and i guess that sort of is true of some of the other artists i talked about but it's a lovely song and then the Final question, what are your favourite things about studying at the LSE? I think for me, there were, you know, I'm not quite sure how it works now at the undergraduate level and how um, strict they are in terms of what uh, particular courses you choose, but there was a fair degree of flexibility then. Um, uh, I started out actually I think in I, I think actually I started out in the economics department and then decided I wanted to do a bit of this geography stuff and then it was a bit of a combination of both but it was in the geography department so it was the ability to sort of be a, the cross things that I really really enjoyed I must say and you know I, th I think looking back on it it was just a very fertile environment for for learning um, maybe I would have got that somewhere else as well I don't know but I think that you know the teaching was good the people that I, uh, I met were, were, were interesting and, um, and thoughtful. So it was really just the ability to sort of learn and grow and learn increasingly what I was interested in. Um, and maybe that's just something that happens to you at that sort of stage in your life. And it's when you're growing and your thoughts and ideas are developing and evolving a lot. But that's what I really think about most when I think about my time there as an undergraduate. So now moving on to your eighth and final song, can you tell me what it is and why? So this is going back to soul music. This is Al Green. I love Al Green. Um, I love a lot of soul singers, but I, 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 I particularly like his, um, his voice. Uh, this is called Let's Stay Together. This is actually the song that I had uh, for my first dance of my wedding, so I have to choose this really. So it reminds me of my wife, uh, it's a lovely song.
Very nice. So we're now moving on to the the last part. So when you get to the island, you're going to be provided with uh, the Torah, the beverage reports, and a book of your choice. What book will you be taking with you? I struggled with this one as well because there's a lot of books that I've really enjoyed reading, but I'm not very good at reading books twice. I very rarely read books twice. Probably I should, but I feel like I've read it. If it's a novel, if I've read it, I kind of know it. Um, um, so here again, I think I'm going to go for something that's a bit more poetical because I feel I can read and read more into things like poems. So I'm going to actually choose some kind of anthology of Bob Dylan's work. You know, he was the first singer to, to win the, the Nobel Laureate, of course, and I think for good reason. Uh, and, you know, he's written a huge amount of stuff, so I could think of really trying to read many of those and get to understand them a lot more. So I'd choose, I'd choose one of those. I'm not sure which is the best anthology, but whichever the best one, the most comprehensive one you can find, I'll take that. Moving on to your luxury item. Well, actually here, I've sort of changed my mind as we're speaking. I was going to go for a bicycle because I love cycling, but then I'm not sure how far I'd get on a desert island without any roads. So maybe what I'll get is a guitar to go with the anthology. And I'm going to try and learn the guitar. Uh, I do play the guitar extremely badly, but I would love to sit there and learn to play well and learn to play his entire works. And that will keep me busy for quite a long time, I think. And then finally, but by no means the least, what is your quote of choice? Well, there's one quote that I've always been attracted to. And this is um, from the uh, Jewish scholar and sage of the, around the 10th century BCE uh, called Hillel um, and he wrote this really I think beautiful quote that's been uh, you know used many times since in various different aspects uh, if I am not for myself who will be for me and being for myself who am I and if not now when um, and I think it really encapsulates the human condition you know that the whole issue of self um, the responsibility of the individual to community and to others, and also the urgency of actually doing things, if not now, when. And in fact, that particular uh, part of it, if not now, when, of course, became the title of the famous Primo Levi book. Um, I think it was written in 1986. And it really makes me often think about the urgency of doing things. Uh, if you believe in something, you know, you should get it done. And it's important to look after yourself and to be yourself. But if that's all you care about, then who really are you? Um, so that's my, my quote. Well, Peter, thank you very much for sharing your Jog for Island Jams. Thank you so much, Will. I've enjoyed it. I appreciate you asking. Thanks.